from Hayama, Japan. I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Joining us on this week's program is Nobel Prize winner and lead author of the IPCC, Professor John Hay, who will talk about climate adaptation and the international climate regime. Also, he'll be joining us for the Grokotron 5000, so stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. The science behind climate change is becoming more and more certain. There are general responses, which are mitigation of the greenhouse gases underlying climate change and adaptation to increasing frequencies of threats to the environment. But、uh, in order to prevent unprecedented catastrophes, we would need to increase our efforts in both mitigation and adaptation. Well, joining us here today is our very special guest,、uh, Professor John Edward Hay. Will tell us some of the、uh, nascent efforts in adaptation and how they're becoming more of a mainstream strategy for climate change. Dr. Hay, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome, and it's a pleasure to be、uh, talking with you today. You, you talk about the, some of the emerging efforts re- with regard to adaptation. Up until very recently, most of the adaptation efforts have been. Focused on assessing what type of adaptation needs、um, should be met, and then secondly, talking about the technologies that can be used to address those needs for adaptation, and thirdly, talking about how we might fund adaptation because adaptation is now recognized as going to be absolutely necessary. The efforts that we're doing to mitigate greenhouse gases are insufficient. So, adaptation will be necessary, and studies are recognizing the fact that adaptation will be relatively expensive in many cases. But as we come to grips and understand the adaptation requirements more significantly, we also recognize that there can be adaptation initiatives that aren't expensive, that they can be done. More as a sort of a business as usual approach rather than as a separate approach to adaptation and isolation. And when we do those sorts of things, so that we build smarter, we grow smarter, we operate smarter, with climate change always in our minds,、um, these things can be done at very low cost. And that's an important understanding that's just coming to realization. I understand you're also a lead author of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I'm just curious, what, what are some of the key recommendations your team had suggested in your previous reports? Well, I think the important thing is to say that, that, that the IPCC cannot make recommendations to, to government. It can advise government, but it cannot.、Um, we say that IPCC. Um, can be policy relevant, but it can't be policy prescriptive. It can't tell governments what to do. 
So it can bring issues to the government's attention, and um, but it's always the choice of governments as to whether they listen to those messages and how they respond. But one of the key messages that's coming out now when, it, when we talk about adaptation, and it comes back to the point I was making about the sort of business as usual and linking to what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, is that extreme events are going to be the critical uh, need for adaptation rather than the gradual changes in temperature. So we're talking about heat waves rather than the temperature simply increasing. The average temperature. Yeah, the mean temperature or the average temperature increasing. It's the same with it might get wetter or it might get drier, but it's the droughts and the floods that we have to deal with rather than just the gradual change in, in average precipitation or gradual change in, in uh, other elements of, of the climate. So that's a, a key message. And then that's why it links with issues like de, um, development and um, human rights and so on, because when we're talking about development processes in, in uh, countries in Asia or countries in, in the Pacific or South America, Africa and so on, we're really recognizing now that we have to build climate change into development initiatives rather than see it again as something separate. So when you're doing a development program in agriculture or water resources or whatever it may be, recognizing the need to think about how those development activities are going to be operating in the future, what's the climate going to be then, rather than thinking about the climate that's existing today. Mm -hmm. So again, thinking for the future, building for the future, planning for the future, rather than planning on the basis of present-day climate conditions. Mm -hmm. So many of us in industrialized or developed economies probably haven't fully grasped the enormity of these changes, and it's usually the uh, developing countries which are facing the brunt of these threats. Just off, to, off the top of your head, are there any statistics that come to mind? Well, there, there is, and off the top of my head, I can't quote you numbers, but there are many studies now that show that people in the developing world are going to be most impacted by climate change, and um, this is because they're working closer to nature than, than we do in the developed world. And secondly, those people are less capable of responding to climate change. We talk about their capacity to, to respond. And because, again, of various circumstances, they don't have a high adaptive capacity. So they've really been dealt with two blows. And the injustice is obvious because these people haven't been the, the causes of climate change. They're not the, contributing very much to the whole process of climate change. So when we talk about equity, and this is a big issue in, in, the, in the climate debate, we're concerned about two things. The, the equity in terms of the ability of people in the developing world to, to respond and, and to accommodate climate change, but the equity of, of those people not being the causes of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, so there are big issues here in, to, in relation to equity. Climate change is a controversial issue in certain places, for example, in the U.S. and other economies that have felt that they would need to pay more if they were to do something about it. 
why should they care about what's happening halfway around the world? Well, I think there's two points to make is that if you look at countries, developed countries like those um, in Scandinavia that who have taken climate change seriously from an early stage, they've actually recognized that it makes good business sense for the private sector in those countries to embrace climate change and work with with governments and work with communities to help address. And so they're actually making good business cases and um, benefiting from climate change. Whereas in the US, and I'm generalizing here, which was in a denial mode, private sector also was in a denial mode because they weren't being guided or encouraged by government. And so they have actually lost ground in a business competitive sense mm-hmm. to Scandinavian countries, um, European countries more, more, more generally. And you see the same in Australia that was in denial mode for a, for a long time. And now they're on the back foot in terms of their, their industrial programs and, and commercial activities. So that why should a country like the U.S. be concerned? Well, well what the U.S. is going to, to find is that its options for addressing climate change get lesser and less as time goes on, and they get more and more expensive as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll be actually finding themselves less competitive than, than, say, the Scandinavian countries. The other reason why they should be concerned about what's happening on the other side of the world is is a humanitarian and an ethical question that um, just because we're advantaged and and have all of the benefits of of good lifestyles and so on, we as human beings should be recognising the demise and the circumstances of, of people, not just in terms of climate change, but just in terms of their quality of life, their their livelihoods and, and so on, relative to what we have here. And I'd like to think that human beings are inherently thoughtful and considerate and, and, and have a high ethical standard, regardless of whether we're talking about climate change or, or whatever. Many scientists see a connection between climate change, equity, and, uh, in fact, uh, wars, and some link, for example, the conflict in the Middle East to bad policies in the past. Could you perhaps elaborate on that a little bit? I, I won't go so much into the past, but there is evidence that environmental issues more broadly have contributed to things like human migration and often have caused stress and tension amongst um, various groups and sometimes that's resulted in conflict. But if you look into the future, one of, and this is why the, one of the reasons why the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize along with Al Gore, the, 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 the vice president of, or ex-vice president of the United States, is that um, one of the great concerns about climate change uh, relates to water scarcity, availability, water security, whatever you, terms you want to use. And some people have speculated that into the future, um, water will become the oil of today in terms of global tensions and sometimes global conflict. So the better we can prepare for a a water-scarce future, 
then the less likelihood there's going to be conflict over, over scarce water resources. So this is one of the things that's motivating the IPCC and its membership to try and make sure governments are thinking of the future in, in these sorts of scenarios. I'm curious about the IPCC itself. Is it primarily a science-driven organization or does it lie primarily at the interface between science and policymaking? I think it, the, the, the IPCC's had a long history now, so, so we, we're talking over 20 years of, of life, which in this scheme of things is, is a long time. And it, the IPCC initially, I think uh, it would be fair to say that its role was to raise the awareness of governments, mm -hmm. and so therefore it was really a science-driven process. People in, on the IPCC were understanding the science, were concerned about it, and felt obligated and mandated to to advise governments to, to take this issue in, in a serious fashion. Over time, it's really interesting to see how things have evolved. And I would say that now it's probably 50-50. Mm. Um, there's policy requirements, not policy, but the need for informed policy and decision-making by governments is turning back to the scientists and saying, advise us, give us the information so that we can make these informed decisions. So it's probably 50-50 now. And I would say if, if there's another 20 years, the scientists are going to be very much driven by the policymakers mm -hmm. and, and planners of this world rather than the other way around. The IPCC consists of about 2,000 uh, researchers who contribute their findings and their peer review without pay. So when we had the Climate Gate scandal last year because of a couple of misstatements regarding the Himalayan glaciers, the media ripped it apart. And in fact, I think certain private interests had incited critical doubt onto the IPCC. Of course, you know, life is not fair, but how, how do you defend yourself against these misrepresentations? Well, there's a number of things to say in response to that. First of all, the scientific method is built on test and questioning and basically you could say on doubt right. because you're always trying to prove something. And, and, right. and, and so people that hold opposite views, I mean, if you look at the history of science, it, it's actually developed and, and evolved in terms of its contribution to humanity, largely because people were skeptical about what science was saying, so therefore you were driven even further to, to make sure that your science was re robust and defensible and, and so on. What we've unfortunately seen is that now the questioning that some people make is motivated by other interests, not just to increase our understanding, but to actually provide economic benefit or distortion of, of economic pursuits out of self-interest or vested interests or whatever it might be. So the, the questioning of the science of climate change is not always altruistic. Sometimes it's motivated by other considerations. And this is unfortunate. The IPCC membership is indeed voluntary, so these are not only scientists, I have to say, but there are other people who would call themselves economists or even historians, people that want to give a historical perspective to, to the whole issue. So these are modern historians, I'm mm -hmm. not talking about uh, ancient history. 
But now this is one of the other things that's changed. Mm. It used to be biophysical scientists like chemists and, and biologists right. and things. Now the, the membership is, is very diverse. It's still heavily science-oriented, but not, not in the traditional or conventional sense of science. These people were, as I say, volunteering their services. Uh, IPCC itself doesn't undertake research. It's assessing the knowledge base, mm -hmm. and most of that knowledge has come through research. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do good assessments, you have to understand the research process, its limitations, and so on, as well as you have to understand the science and applied science and so on. Because it's a huge process, it goes over each report, um, has a five-year history. There's many, many people involved, and it's not just the IPCC members themselves, but we have what we call contributing authors. If we don't have the expertise, we go out and ask people to, to engage with us and contribute to the whole process. Mm -hmm. So when you look at that, it's a huge operation. And inevitably, in anything like this, a few people are going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really unfortunate when you see those sorts of mistakes undermining the rest of the work. It's like sort of having a, a bad apple in a, in, mm -hmm. a, in a whole crate of, of apples, and that bad apple really sort of might lead to the whole crate of apples being thrown out, Be right. a good fruit thrown out just because there's a piece of bad fruit in there. Mm -hmm. And what we've been working hard is to make sure that the, the messages that are robust don't get missed simply because of the focus of the debate on a few unfortunate errors. We're human beings. Of course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You've been in academia for over 35 years and advised uh, various governments as well as uh, multilateral organizations like the World Bank. When you take the long view, what are you most optimistic about and what are you most concerned about? Well, I'm obviously I'm concerned that the messages that are coming out of the work of IPCC, and, and, and it's not just IPCC, that governments like the European Union and even the United States, I have to say, um, is now taking the issue seriously and is... is asking for studies, the government's asking for studies, so that you can see some really good assessments coming of the problem coming out of the US now, because the IPCC works on a five-year scale, so or time frame, and so you need studies to come out within that time frame, because science is changing, the problem's changing. I mean, when I started, at you, you talk about how long I've been in, in, in this area of activity. When I started university studies, they were talking about the next ice age. Mm -hmm. I mean, a long way away, we were talking about nuclear winter with all of the fallout from possible nuclear war. Everything was talking about the planet getting colder and colder, and natural cycles would lead to the planet getting colder and colder. What we see now is something else coming in as on top of that, which is overwhelming the cooling and leading to considerable warming. So I'm, I'm pessimistic that governments won't take the message seriously and quickly. But time is, is of the essence, and every day that we wait, our options are less, and the costs of exercising those options, of, of responding, those costs increase, not only in economic terms, but in social terms as well. I'm optimistic because I've seen this planet, if we look at huge geologic timescales, 
going through huge cycles in, in temperature, the natural variability, the glaciers, the interglacial, the, the glacial periods, the ice ages, interglacials, and so on. And I'm a strong believer in both the ability of, of the natural systems, but now also the ability of, of humans working in tandem with those natural systems of actually being able to move through these periods, let's call them crisis periods, and coming out the, the other side better informed, better equipped to deal with the future, whatever that might bring. And lastly, I, w I want to ask for your thoughts on education. Um, in, in your lecture yesterday, you mentioned that it's important to be both a specialist and a generalist. But for many young people going through the university system, we seem to be inundated with more and more coursework, lots of knowledge, lots of data, but very little time to focus or to digest and synthesize the big picture. Um, do you have any advice for young people who are interested in, in these um, concerns and getting into the field? Well, there's, there's two points to, to your question. The, one is the, the specialized generalization point, but the other one is that that students' workload is is getting greater and greater, and as you say, there's less time for students to f reflect. And, and reflection is a, a really important part of, of of the learning process. Not only self-reflection, but reflecting with colleagues and friends. You you see students sitting around and and talking, and quite often, I think the uninformed or ill-informed would think that they're wasting their time. But actually, students sitting around talking about what they're learning and how their understanding is evolving is an important part of the process. My advice to students that not just in terms of climate change or environmental science more generally, whatever line of learning, is that they do get a solid foundation. Um, so you might look at it as saying, oh, they're going to be specialists. But always recognizing that you need that foundation of knowledge, that you, you can't these days come in as a generalist right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, you'll just get annihilated um, every time you, you make a statement because you'll be making it from a very poorly informed situation. So you need that specialist background. But even while you're doing specialized or more focused studies, even as an undergraduate, you have electives. All university programs have electives, and what I'd urge people to do is to use the choice of electives very wisely. Don't fritter them away by saying, let's take the easiest course, mm -hmm. regardless of what it is. Don't fritter away by, by simply taking courses which might be the ones that are the flavor of the month or the year <laughs> or the century. Uh -huh. um, don't take a course simply because your friend, your best friend, or maybe your girlfriend is, is taking that one and you want to spend a little time with her in <laughs> class as well as outside class. Make a wise choice of those electives with a thought that they, those electives may form the foundation of this broader knowledge that you you can acquire when you go into into postgraduate studies or the broader knowledge that you might acquire when you graduate from university and go into employment and increasingly employers are not wanting specialists they're wanting generalists because the labor market 
changes what the expertise you need today is not the expertise that, that an employer might want tomorrow. So the more flexible you are as an employee, the more employable you are. But you still need that, obviously, that um, foundation knowledge. But, for example, I, I took economics as, as one of my electives, not because I um, had really great insight about the importance of economics at that stage. I was a naive, basically a 20-year-old, making those sorts of decisions. But something was telling me that understanding the, 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 the economics of a, any situation, and even as a scientist, I needed to be able to understand the, the whole sort of some of these economic principles and methodologies and so on. And that st stood me in, in good stead. Ironically, I wish I'd taken some law courses rather than economics or maybe taking them both um, because law for my work has also been very, mm -hmm. very important. And mm -hmm. I, in fact, in mid-career, went back to university and did two-thirds of a law degree before I had to give up because I took on a huge administration load in the <laughs> university and I couldn't be a student as well as a professor. They, they just didn't mix at that stage. But I urge people to take um, careful consideration of their electives rather than seeing them as irrelevant. Certainly very wise insights. Um, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? Well, I'm, I'm sitting here in an office at Ibaraki University in, in Japan. Um, my voice has probably given me away as a, as a New Zealander. But one of the things that I have really enjoyed is the international contacts and international experiences, not just from a professional point of view, but from a social point of view, the, the camaraderie that develops between people of, of different nationalities, different races, ethnicity, whatever it might be. So professionally and as well as personally. And I also have to say that coming to Japan, it's not only the people who are marvelous, but it's also the food. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Hay, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And we're just talking to Professor John Hay on the climate adaptation and the international climate regime. In a few moments, he'll join us for the Grokotron 5000. So stay right there. Welcome back to the program. Well, Professor Hay has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And this week's question is adaptable or not adaptable. And we're going to come off with uh, five characters. Are you ready, Professor Hay? I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. <laughs> okay. Adaptable or not, former Vice President Al Gore. I'd say adaptable, and the reason why I say that is is that he moved out of the political field into the public awareness and media field very, very adroitly. Subject number two, entrepreneur and mogul uh, Richard Branson. Oh, completely adaptable. I mean, he, he's an entrepreneur, as you say, he's an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs by definition have to be adaptable. Subject number three, the UNFCCC, adaptable or not? No. Um, I'd have to say that um, part of our problem these days is that 
not not because of any strong desire or wish to be inflexible, but just the whole bureaucratic system. I mean, we're seeing that it played out in Copenhagen last year and in Cancun this year. is just unable to deal with the changing politics of climate change. Subject number four, Wall Street or financial institutions, adaptable or not? Well, I'd, depending on which hat I put on here, I mean, survivors, you'd have to, you'd have to say, and so if, if surviving uh, reflects ability to adapt, um, then I'd say they're very adaptable. But on the other hand, um, the whole global economic and financial system was changing and Wall Street didn't adapt, and that's why we have the, the problems we're dealing with today. So survivors, but not adaptable. All right, and finally, uh, subject number five, Star Wars character, Master Jedi Yoda, adaptable or not? Well, now you've got me because I'm not really a, a Star Wars aficionado. But my vague recollections, I would say um, in between. Okay. <laughs> How's that for hedging? All right, well, thank you again. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on our program, Professor Hay. You're welcome, Frank. And once again, we're joined by Professor John Hay, Nobel Prize winner and lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, or IPCC. And that's all for this week's edition of Rock Science. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Rock Science, you can email us at science at rocks.net. You can also see us on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. <laughs>